And now, a special motorcycle weather report from Progressive. And today, expect mostly sunny conditions with a high on life that can only come from cruising down the road on two wheels. Kids will wave, dogs will bark, and cyclists in padded shorts will instantly regret their chosen mode of transportation. Whereas you, on the other hand, will look super-duper cool. Back to you in the studio. This has been a special motorcycle weather report from Progressive, where every day's a beautiful day to ride with coverage from America's number one motorcycle insurer. Get a quote today and see what you could save. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to a special guest episode of That Trippy Show. Today we're talking to Rick Hassan, a professor of law and political science at the UC Irvine School of Law, where he is the co-director of the Fair Elections and Free Speech Center. He also runs the Election Law blog, which is a really great resource on all things election related. We'll put a link to that in our, uh, in our show notes. But I want to call out uh, the book I read of his uh, election meltdown. I think it came out in 2020, uh, which which really uh, impacted how how I I started to think about what was going on. But his new book, Cheap Speech: How Disinformation Poisons Our Politics and How to Cure It, uh, which came out recently, um, I think is in a lot of ways. Uh, uh, very, one, very timely, but, uh, but scary. <laughs> Rick, uh, welcome to the show. And uh, I, why the, why the name cheap speech? Sure. Well, it's great to be with you. And I should say that the term cheap speech didn't originate with me. It actually originated with a, another law professor, a First Amendment scholar named Eugene Volokh. And he was writing back in the 1990s. He wrote an article called Cheap Speech and What It Would Do, What It Will Do. And what he was looking at was um, what was going to happen with the upcoming information revolution. You know, in the 1990s, you had your channels two, four, and seven. You know, you had your uh, you had some local stations, you had some local newspapers. If you didn't like something in the New York Times, you could write a letter to the editor, and if you were very lucky, it got printed. Otherwise, you could scream into the wind. And what he saw was we were going to have this movement from a trickle of information to a flood. If Now, if you don't like what's in the New York Times, you can post it in a, a million places. People, you can get your word out. It's, you know, we're on a podcast now. You know, it's very easy to spread information. And he was very optimistic about what this was going to mean. He saw this as very democratizing. The intermediaries, the gatekeepers that were there before would no longer be there. And he, he saw that as a very positive thing. And I think there have been a lot of positive developments over the last 30 years in terms of the information revolution. I mean, think about the George Floyd social justice movement, the fact that you can share videos online of police brutality. Uh, people can organize for political action. It's all great. But there's a dark side too. And, and, and by cheap speech, I mean a, a second thing as well, which is we have a system now where lower valued speech uh, has an advantage in the information marketplace over higher valued speech. It's still very expensive to produce good investigative journalism that holds politicians to account. But doing that is harder and harder to do because the economic model as we've moved in this in the information space, uh, the economic model for local newspapers especially has collapsed. All the advertising has moved to Google and Facebook, right? So you don't have the support anymore. It's really expensive to produce this stuff. At the same time, it's really cheap to produce misinformation and disinformation. You could package it, make it look really nice on a podcast, on a, on a website. 
and it doesn't cost a lot to, to lie and to make things up. You can use video and manipulate images and you can do all kinds of things. And it makes it harder for voters to get reliable information about what's true and what's false. And it allows for things in my focus is elections, the spreading of the big lie. It would have been much harder. I actually claim at the beginning of cheap speech, we wouldn't have had the January 6th insurrection. We wouldn't have millions of people having lost faith in the integrity of the election process if we uh, had the technology of the 1950s and the polarization of today. So it has a dark side too. Yeah, I think I read that you had basically had to completely redo the book after January 6th. Uh, you know, we were all concerned about how fragile the election system with, was, but the Trump and the big lie that you just talked about, you know, really have taken concerns to a new level. Is that how, why you had to, 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 to change the book around or how did it impact you? So you mentioned at the top that... Um, my last book, which came out in 2020, Election Meltdown, was kind of predicting how we were going to have this crisis over election legitimacy. The book came out on the day of the Iowa caucuses when you know we had that, oh, wow. that had that yeah, meltdown, and yeah. you know I've been unfortunately prescient, and so the you know what what cheap speech was talking about is okay now we're about to move into violence and we're about to move into kind of a a, a real threat to the integrity of the of our democracy itself, and so I had a, I had a first draft done in December after the election of, of 2020 and talking about the potential for violence. And then January 6th happened. And so I decided I had to recast the book to not predict about violence, but to explain how we got there. And so the first part of the book now is just, uh, you know, kind of explaining the path of the 2020 election. And remember, it was Donald Trump who encouraged his supporters to have to come to Washington, D.C. to have a wild time. There was that very famous tweet about that, and then he followed it up. And we know that Oath Keepers and others organized using Facebook groups, right? Again, using the tools of cheap speech to find each other, organize for violent action and invade the Capitol. So, yeah, I mean, I had to rework it to show not only is this a risk, but it's the actuality. And if we don't get our house in order, 2020 is more of a dress rehearsal or a dry run for what's coming in 2024. Yeah, I mean, you, 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 I mean, what I'm worried about is if we go into 2022 and 2024, uh, the time, I mean, you know, this machine, this outrage machine or whatever you want to call, you know, that, that's being fueled easily by cheap speech, by the ability for them to keep pumping this stuff out, that's not going to change in the next five, six months. I mean, that, 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 you, you know, this, you know, sort of the thing, that you identify, and I agree with you, with what you're saying. What can we start to do to get out of it? I think it's like a, it's almost a death spiral to some degree. I mean, where you know truth is being drowned out by by the bad, and you're you know there's no it, as you said, it costs more to produce the truth, you know, truth and and keep repeating it when cheap speech is sort of choking that out. Right. So I think that um, rather than seeing my books as calls for despair, as some people do. I see them as calls for action. And I do think there's right. stuff that we can do. That's why I wanted you on, because I wanted that. I mean, that's what I wanted to talk uh, talk about. What can we do? So, you know, I, I should say, first of all, that, the, you know, the problems of cheap speech in terms of elections are not just the potential for violence. But let me just mention another one before I turn to solutions lack of accountability of office holders, uh, you know, when when uh, you don't have a press that can hold uh, 
politicians to account when it is all in the outrage machine, then uh, there's, there's no accountability for politicians that can get away with anything. And of course, if you're someone like a Marjorie Taylor Greene, you used to have to depend on the party leadership supporting you. If you were, you know, a, a relatively new member of Congress, you, you didn't have a big fundraising base typically. Now you could become a celebrity member of Congress. The more outrageous you are, the more you're going right. to attract people who are going to send you $5. It's so cheap to raise money. I mean, you, you uh, and I remember the days of direct mail when it was extremely expensive to try to raise money and like to, tr to raise $20 wouldn't be worth it. But now, you know, it's very easy to do that. And those dollars can add up. So, you know, there's a lot of problems. So how, how do we deal with them? So I think part of the answer is through changes in law. And part of the answer is through changes in our politics. So uh, on the law side, most of the kinds of things I want to do are to improve the information marketplace. So think about a deep fake. You know, this is one of these manipulated videos. You know, it might show Joe Biden having a heart attack. It might show Donald Trump saying a racial epithet, you know, a fake video that could be made that people would believe or maybe cause people to not believe anything they see. Roger Stone right. recently claimed that the, some of the stuff that was caught on video about him was a deep fake. Right? So how do we deal with that? So one thing I say is that social media companies could be required to label all altered videos as altered whether it's satire or not, you know, so it's a, you know, it's, it's a, a Lincoln Project video and it's altered or it's uh, a Russian um, government, op whatever, whoever's making it, just have altered at the bottom. Then voters have a signal so that they know oh, this is something, is this true? Is it not true? Right. Right. So, I mean, so there's, there are things we could do. If you get a, if you get served a TV ad for a, for a, uh, a supporting a candidate for office, and you're, you're watching it on TV and it's coming to you through direct TV or it's coming to you through Spectrum, there are disclosure rules that apply. But if that same ad comes to you from a Hulu or from YouTube TV, it's not subject to disclosure rules because we haven't updated our rules. There's a lot we could do. And people use information about who is behind ads to make judgments. So if you know, oh, you know, it's not a fellow black activist, but it's a Russian government agent who's running the ad, you might judge it differently. Um, so we can do things like that. We can outlaw lies about when, where, and how people vote. So, you know, telling people that they can vote by text or by social media hashtag. We had a case like this in 2016. Messages targeted African-American voters. 5,000 people tried to vote that way. We can outlaw that. That's the stuff we can do. But it's not going to be enough. And I I'm concerned that the Supreme Court's jurisprudence is going to make it hard to come up with effective laws that will be consistent with how the current Supreme Court is thinking about the First Amendment. You might think it's all they're all libertarian. But in fact, Justice Thomas has suggested that the laws that Florida and Texas have passed that would require Facebook and Twitter to restore Donald Trump to the platform are, in fact, constitutional. So there's like all there's a whole legal mess. So we have to think beyond law. You know, one of the things I'm thinking about um, is the employees of companies like Twitter, and, and think about Elon Musk. Mm -hmm. He's he's coming in. He's yeah. I wanted to ask you about that. What, what you thought? So let's say that Musk, you know, completes the sale, and who knows if that's actually going to happen. But let's say he does complete the sale, and he says, you know, Donald Trump is welcome back, and, and Trump is coming back. Well, 
Uh, I don't think that we can have a government law that says you've got to exclude or include a particular person, just like we wouldn't want to have a law that says the New York Times or Fox News has to include or exclude anyone. But the public can organize a pressure campaign against Twitter. More importantly, I think, the employees of the companies, if you think about the tech world, it's very competitive to keep the engineers and to keep everybody who's... Yeah. So, you know, let's see these employees say, you know, band together and say, you know, if you do this, we're going to leave, you know? So I think that we have to start thinking about political actions. Uh, another example I have of this, not, not a legal solution, but another way to give voters better tools is imagine if a society of journalists came up with a set of criteria. They said, here's what real journalism means. It means getting to sources. It means going back to anyone you're writing about and giving them a chance to respond. And then if you comply with all of these, you get a kind of good housekeeping seal of approval. And then you can use that. So if you're the Los Angeles Times and you've gotten the approval, when you're on social media, there could be a little icon next to Los Angeles Times and people will know, OK, this is at least has a good chance of being true as opposed to, you know, it's some fake company. And maybe there's a fight over whether Breitbart gets the seal of approval or not. You know, that itself would educate the public. And so I think these kinds of things can help stem the 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 tide of, of of this disinformation wave that we're facing right now. You know, we talked to Jonathan Haidt a few days ago. Uh, you know, he pointed out that, that that you know the social media echo chamber is like literally coming for the most part from seven or eight percent of people on the far right and seven or eight percent of people on the far left. I mean that they're the loudest voices on and and on all sides at disinformation or the the anger or outrage uh, thing actually is pulling, you know, just keeps sort of silencing everybody else, including uh, the, the, the truth. It, is, are there things individuals can do in your, as you're thinking about this? Or, uh, I mean, he suggested everybody ha turn, stop half of their time on social media with uh, retweeting things, would, uh, would, but I don't think that's going to happen. So I just wanted to see if you had some thoughts. Yeah, you know, one of the things that uh, the social science studies show uh, is that older people are more likely to spread disinformation. I think because they grew up in an era when they were more likely to believe that the things that they read were actually true. Um, so certainly there can be a bit of self-control. And, you know, I think it's hard, like you said, it's hard to avoid the retweet, especially if it's something that yeah. looks too good to be true, you know. Oh, there, you know, you don't like Trump. Oh, there's something embarrassing about Trump, right? So what, what did he call, um, it was J.D. Mandel? Was that the, uh, you know, the, the yeah, he, yeah. He, he messed up the name. Of, he, he, he did a little mashup of the candidate's name of, of who he was trying to endorse in Ohio, right? So, of course, you want to spread that if you don't like Trump, right? Or, or Joe Biden makes a gaffe and, you know, it fits into this idea that he's, you know, um, losing his marbles, you know, like people share stuff. So... The machine is set up for that. So I think right. it's a lot to ask people to not do it. But I mean, yeah, sure, don't do it. But it, but it's really yeah, hard. Yeah, they're going to. But, you know, so much of this depends on what the social media companies serve up. So I don't think the solution is, you know, more self-control, although that, you know, that could be part of it. It's more about pressuring the companies to do the right thing, right? There is no neutral when it comes to an algorithm that's going to present you with stuff on the social media sites. So you have to have some rule, right? So if we had no rule, you know, Elon Musk is talking about, 
you know, the limit will be what the First Amendment uh, uh, or what the law. He said, he said, the, you know, anything that's legal basically can be on the platform. Sure. But if if there was no algorithm or moderation, our feeds would be filled with hate speech, pornography, male enhancement pill ads. I mean, it would just be a place where no one would want to go. So cer certain decisions are going to have to be made just from a business point of view. So, you know, what does it mean to be a responsible corporate citizen? Well, I think it means you don't amplify COVID disinformation, even if there's a constitutional right to say it. You don't amplify uh, election disinformation. And so, you know, I think there should be a very heavy thumb on the scale against excluding politicians based on their viewpoints. But once they cross into the line of encouraging violence or of relentlessly spreading false information that an election was stolen, I think a responsible corporate citizen should say, we don't want that on our platform. And so I think, you know, in, individual members or kind of, uh, individual people who are using these platforms, they can exercise self-control, but that's not going to fundamentally change the problem. Change, change the problem. The solutions we need are broader. And ultimately, the kinds of laws that might be required are better privacy laws so that these companies can't harness private information to try to manipulate public opinion or allow campaigns to do it through micro-targeting of ads, and even antitrust law. So maybe it should be that Meta shouldn't be able to own Facebook and Instagram and WhatsApp. Maybe Google shouldn't be able to own Search and YouTube and their ads, uh, you know, set up. So, you know, I don't, I don't know exactly how we're going to solve this problem. But what's clear is that if you want to have a commitment to both free speech and fair elections, we're going to have to have a better system than we have now. You know, you mentioned the First Amendment a couple times now, and I, I heard you talking about it on, on the Slate Pod a couple weeks ago. And the idea that there's this frame of the First Amendment that like goods, the good and the truth and whatever good speech is will will rise to the top, right? And, and in, in, a, in a totally free marketplace, it's going to make it just on its own merits. But you're kind of arguing that it's essentially being choked out and it's kind of the, the frame is wrong now. Can you elaborate on that a little more? Sure. Yeah, sure. So for like the last, you know, seven decades or more. The, most of the justices of the Supreme Court have kind of thought of the First Amendment as a marketplace of ideas. And what you would have in the marketplace of ideas is that the truth would rise to the top. The solution to bad speech is more speech or counter speech. And the Supreme Court said that most recently in a 2012 case involving a guy who lied about having won a Congressional Medal of, uh, of Honor and violated a a federal law called the Stolen Valor Act. And the Supreme Court said it's unconstitutional to, to punish someone for lying about this and the truth will come out. Well, I think what we see about the 2020 election is the truth has not come out. That is, there are millions of people who believe the false claim that the 2020 election was stolen despite all reliable evidence of the contrary. It's not really something that is up for debate. If we had a fair election in 2020, we did. So if it's not true that the truth will rise to the top, you know, what do you do about that? You know, how do you correct that market failure? You know, one one answer might be censorship. And the problem with censorship is uh, that it makes things even worse because then you put power in the hands of a government bureaucrat to decide what's true and what's false. So the 2020 election shows the truth doesn't always rise to the top. But we don't want to move to having a government censor, which would be make things even worse. I mean, just imagine the president you hate the most getting to appoint the speech czar. You know, there was just this 
uh, controversy over the last week when um, the uh, Homeland Security Department announced they were setting up a disinformation governing board, which doesn't sound like it's doing any governing, uh, but is looking at disinformation. But already that sounds Orwellian and we don't want that. So how do you deal with the fact that the truth doesn't rise to the top, uh, but voters uh, are being filled with disinformation. And I think we need to have a different frame for the First Amendment. We need to think about the First Amendment where the greatest risk is not government censorship. The greatest risk right now is loss of voter competence because of a flood of disinformation and, 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 and emotional appeals. And so uh, what I'm looking for in the book are ways to deal with that without censoring speech. And, and, and th that's hard to do because, you know, uh, of course, we can look at things and say they look false. But if you try and think about what the details would be of who in the government is going to get to decide this, then it gets very dicey. Right. So, Rick, I did want to follow up on that last point. It's it's pretty clear that there's a kind of this renewed focus on going for actually some of these election uh, positions that are going to be overseeing either the counting or kind of resolving disputes in some of these states. You look at, uh, I know you've talked about it before, Brad Raffensperger in Georgia. You look at the Michigan Secretary of State, Arizona. A couple of these races might end up being the ones that 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 actually decide the 2024 race. Are we, are we that close to that happening? Yeah. So now this gets into an issue that's related, but not the same as the topic of my book. It's the issue of election subversion. And I have a, a, a long piece that uh, posted last week at the Harvard Law Review Forum that talks about how the United States really is in danger of not having a free and fair election in 2024. And the reason I'm focused on 2024 rather than 2022 is that the presidential election is uniquely open to manipulation. There are so many steps that happen between the time that voters vote and the time we get our winner certified at the end that there's room for manipulation. We saw Trump trying to do that. And so I think that's a huge problem. And you flagged one of the really big issues, which is some of the people who are going to be running the election in 2024 are people who've embraced the big lie that the 2020 election was stolen. Even if they do everything fairly and by the book, are Democrats going to accept the results as legitimate? So if Jody Heiss is the Secretary of State of Georgia, and he says Trump's beaten Biden, if it's a Trump-Biden too, uh, contest in 2024. I think a lot of people are not going to believe it. They're going to believe it was manipulated. So we need to have rules in place, transparency rules in place, so that we know that votes are being fairly counted. We need to have paper ballots everywhere so that there's pieces of paper that a fair arbitrator, you know, a court or some other body can look at. Um, I'm really worried because, you know, if you actually believe the last election was stolen, you might be more willing to steal the next one back. Well, and there's all kinds of polling data on that, right? Where it's like 20% of the country actually believes that it not only is it stolen, but it's okay to use subversion or even violence to to kind of do the rightful thing or whatever they believe is right. It's 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 wild. It's a scary time, and so I think you know, as with the solutions I offer for cheap speech and dealing with election subversion, some of it is about making changes in law, like fixing the rules that Congress uses to count electoral college votes. But some of it is also about politics and about finding people in the center, Democrats and Republicans who disagree about lots of substantive things, but who agree on that we need to have free and fair elections that are conducted under the rule of law. And that's the project 
for the next half decade. We've got to get through the 2024 election. It's got to be a free and fair election, and there's no guarantee that it will be. We can't take our democratic process for granted anymore. Why is it that you said that our presidential election is so ripe for manipulation? Isn't is is it the fact that we're so decentralized? Is that a good thing or a bad thing in this context in terms of there's no one process? So, you know, I think decentralization can work in terms of subversion can work as a benefit or a detriment. Like the benefit is uh, you can't manipulate the whole system, right? The detriment is, and I made this argument in election meltdown, uh, you're only as strong as your weakest link. So if you've got one state or one part of a state where things are messed up, it could mess up the whole system. Um, So uh, the reason that the presidential election is so subject to manipulation is because we, you know, take a vote for Senator uh, in a state. You count up the votes, who's ever gotten the most votes wins, or, or you know, if, if a state has a runoff, whoever gets over 50% wins, and, and then it's over. And you count the votes, and, and it's, not, it's not that complicated. But when you talk about the presidential election, because of the electoral college, you know, there are both, th- there's a series of steps for those electoral college votes to be certified. There's also the potential for those um, for state legislatures to try to step in to overturn because we have this weird constitutional overlay that applies on top of our election rules. Uh, this is how Trump was trying to manipulate the 2020 election. He was trying to have uh, the state legislatures convene and appoint alternative slates of electors based on fake claims of fraud and to have those sent in and have Congress maybe deadlock, which would throw the election to the House of Representatives under rules in the 12th Amendment that would have each state delegation in Congress have one vote, which would allow Republicans to have an advantage. Those kinds of things make it uniquely difficult. So Rick, you know, as we're getting uh, short on time, the one thing I really wanted to ask you was, you know, how worried are you that democracy can't survive this uh, if we don't work on these solutions soon? particularly given January 6th, the increasing uh, way cheap speech is is sort of unleashing the violence and things like that. Um, How how worried are you about it? And and do we have, in your view, do we have time? I know you're not, you don't want to be the pessimist here. You want to be, move us forward. But I'm very concerned about that. I'm very frightened. Never in my lifetime did I expect to see the question of whether the United States can co- conduct a free and fair election and a peaceful transition of power be, be a real issue here, right? That's what happens in other countries, countries that don't have a long history of democracy. But one of the things we learned from 2020 and Trump's attempts to manipulate the process is that so much depends on people acting in good faith. So much depends on norms rather than rules about how we translate voters' votes to who the choice of the next president is. And so one of the things that saved us in 2020 were Republican heroes, people who stood up to Trump who said, no, the rules are this way. You lost. I can't change the election results. Next time around, a lot of those people are going to have been forced out of their offices, have resigned or quit. They've faced violence, whatever it is. Threats, I say they faced threats of violence or whatever it is. So I'm really worried And what we need is a coalition in the center of people who might disagree on issues about immigration or abortion or taxes, but who agree we should have free and fair elections 
where the winner is declared the winner. And if you lose, you accept the results as legitimate and you agree to fight another day. Right? That's called loser's consent. It's essential for a democracy. And it's something I don't think we can take for granted. Yeah, that's something that uh, Alex and I have been talking about a lot. We created the the union and urged people to go to jointheunion.us um, because it's not just Democrats. It can't Democrats, as you said, can't do it alone. It's got to be a broad based sort of pro democracy coalition of people who can agree on that, uh, put everything else aside, but agree that we need to defend and protect our our democracy. And I really urge people to read the book, uh, Cheap Speech, because I think there are, uh, it really raises the alarm, but also there are real answers, which is unusual in a lot of the stuff that we're talking about. There's a lot of despair, but no, nothing we can do. Uh, Rick has outlined things we can. That's why I'm really happy you could join us today, Rick. I've really enjoyed the conversation. Hopefully, it's a wake-up call for a bunch of people. I hope so, and I, we're going to get the word out there, and uh, I hope uh, those listening will uh, urge others to listen to this uh, this uh, episode of the podcast. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening to that trippy show. We'll include a link to Rick's new book in the show notes. You can follow Rick on Twitter at Rick Hassan and check out the Election Law blog at electionlawblog.org. And of course, please subscribe to That Trippy Show and leave a review on Apple or wherever you listen. You can always send us a question to thattrippyshow at gmail.com or leave us a question and a review on iTunes. Rick, thanks so much. Oh, it's been a pleasure. Progressive Insurance protects people's cars, homes, and other vehicles. But if you've ever seen our commercials or even just heard our name, you probably already knew that. What you may not know is that we support Humble Design, a nonprofit that furnishes homes for families and veterans emerging from homelessness. Because a little help goes a long way. And a lot of help. Well, you get the idea. Now, if you already knew all of this about Progressive Insurance, we're impressed. We'll have to find something else cool to tell you next time. Find out more about how we're dedicated to our customers and communities at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates.